8. As into this furnace fell, their bitter tears and screams were stilled in death. Around the flames armed hosts are skirmishing. The burning sun reflects the lurid scene, the German army fighting for its life, rallies its torn and terrified left wing, and, as they near this place the imperial eagles see before them in their flight. Here, in the solemn night, the old cathedrals, to the years to be showing, with wounded arms, their own disgrace. Music of War by Rudyard Kipling The following speech was delivered by Mr. Kipling on January 27, 1915, at a meeting in London promoted by the Recruiting Bands Committee, and held with the object of raising bands in the London district as an aid to a recruiting. The most full thing that a civilian can do in these busy days is to speak as little as possible, and if he feels moved to write, to confine his efforts to his checkbook. Laughter. But this is an exception to that very sound rule. We do not know the present strength of the new armies. Even if we did it would not be necessary to make it public. But we may assume that there are several battalions in Great Britain which were not in existence at the end of last July. And some of them are in London. Nor is it any part of our national policy to explain how far these battalions are prepared for the work which is ahead of them. They were born quite rightly in silence. But that is no reason why they should continue to walk in silence for the rest of their lives. Cheers. Unfortunately up to the present most of them have been obliged to walk in silence or to no better accompaniment than whistles and concertinas and other meritorious but inadequate instruments of music with which they have provided themselves. In the beginning this did not matter so much. More urgent needs had to be met, but now that the new armies are what they are, we who cannot assist them by joining their ranks owe it to them to provide them with more worthy music for their help, their gratification, and their honor. Cheers. I am not a musician. So if I speak as a barbarian I must ask you and several gentlemen on the platform here to forgive me. From the lowest point of view a few drums and fifes in the battalion mean at least five extra miles in a route march. Quite apart from the fact that they can swing a battalion back to quarters happy and composed in its mind. No matter how wet or tired its body may be. Even when there is no route marching. The mere come and go. The roll and flourishing of drums and fifes around the barracks is as warming and cheering as the sight of a fire in a room. A band, not necessarily a full band, but a band of a dozen brasses and woodwinds, is immensely valuable in the district where men are billeted. It revives memories. It quickens association. It opens and unites the hearts of men more surely than any other appeal can. And in this respect it aids recruiting perhaps more than any other agency. I wonder whether I should say this the tune that it employs and the words that go with that tune are sometimes very remote from heroism or devotion, but the magic and the compelling power is in them, and it makes men's souls realize certain truths that their minds might doubt. Further, no one, not even the adjutant, can say for certain where the soul of the battalion lives, but the expression of that soul is most often found in the band. Cheers. It stands to a reason that 1.200 men whose lives are pledged to each other must have some common means of expression, some common means of conveying their moods and their thoughts to themselves and their world. The band feels the moods and interprets the thoughts. A wise and sympathetic bandmaster and the masters that I had met have been that can lift a battalion out of depression, cheer it in sickness, and steady and recall it to itself in times of almost unendurable stress. Cheers. You may remember a beautiful poem by Sir Henry Newbolt, in which he describes how a squadron of weary big dragoons were led to a renewed effort by the strains of a penny whistle and a child's drum taken from a toy shop in a wrecked French town. I remember in India, in a cholera camp, where the men were suffering very badly, 
the band of the 10th Lincoln started a regimental sing-song and went on with that queer, defiant tune, the Lincolnshire Poacher. It was their regimental march that the men had heard a thousand times. There was nothing in it nothing except all England, all the East Coast, all the fun and daring and horseplay of young men bucketing about big pastures in the moonlight. But as it was given, very softly at that bad time in that terrible camp of death, it was the one thing in the world that could have restored, as it did restore, shaken men back to their pride, humor, and self-control. Cheers. This may be an extreme instance, but it is not an exceptional one. Any man who has had anything to do with the service will tell you that the battalion is better for music at every turn, happier, more easily handled, with greater zest in its daily routine. If that routine is sweetened with melody and rhythm melody for the mind and rhythm for the body, our new armies have been badly served in this essential. Of all the admirable qualities which they have shown none is more wonderful than the spirit which has carried them through the laborious and distasteful groundwork of their calling without one note of music, except that which the same indomitable spirit provided out of their own heads. We have all seen them marching through the country, through the streets of London, in absolute silence and the crowds through which they pass ate as silent as themselves for the lack of the one medium that could convey and glorify the thoughts that are in us all today. We are a tongue-tied brute at the best. The bands can declare on our behalf without shame and without shyness something of what we all feel and help us to reach a hand toward the men who have risen up to save us. In the beginning the more urgent requirements of the new armies overrode all other considerations. Now we can get to work on some other essentials. The War Office has authorized the formation of bands for some of the London battalions, and we may hope presently to see the permission extended throughout Great Britain. We must not. However, cherish unbridled musical ambitions, because a full band means more than 40 pieces, and on that establishment we should even now require a rather large number of men, but I think it might be possible to provide drums and fifes for every battalion, full bands at the depots, and a proportion of battalion bands on half, or even one-third, establishments, but this is not a matter to be settled by laymen, it must be discussed seriously between bandmasters and musicians present, past and dug up, laughter, they may be trusted to give their services with enthusiasm, we have had many proofs in the last six months that people only want to know what the new army needs, and it will be gladly and cheerfully given, the army needs music, its own music, for, more than in any other calling, soldiers do not live by bread alone, from time immemorial the man who offers his life for his land has been compassed at every turn of his service with elaborate ceremonial and observance, of which music is no small part, all carefully designed to support and uphold him. It is not seemly and it is not expedient that any portion of that ritual should be slurred or omitted now. Cheers! America and a new world state how the United States may take the lead in the formation of a world confederation for the prevention of future wars by Norman Angel The object of this article is to show that however much America may attempt to hold herself free in Europe, she will very deeply feel the effects both material and moral, of upheavals like that which is now shaking the old continent, that even though there be no aggressive action against her, the militaries Zion of Europe will force upon America also a militarist development, and that she can best avoid these dangers and secure her own safety and free development by taking the lead in a new world policy which is briefly this, to use her position to initiate and guide a Grouping of all the civilized powers having as its object the protection of any one of its members that is the victim of aggression. The aid to be given for such an object should not be, in the case of the United States, 
military but economic, by means of the definite organization of non-intercourse against the recalcitrant power, America's position of geographical and historical remoteness from European quarrels places her in a particularly favorable position to direct this world organization, and the fact of undertaking it would give her in some sense the moral leadership of the Western world, and make her the center of the world state of the future. Copyright. 1915. By the New York Times Company. I in the discussion of America's relation to the rest of the world we have always assumed almost as an axiom that America has nothing to do with Europe is only in the faintest degree concerned with its politics and developments, that by happy circumstance of geography and history we are isolated and self-sufficing, able to look with calm detachment upon the annex of the distant Europeans. When a European landed on these shores we were pretty certain that he left Europe behind him, only quite recently. Indeed, have we realized that we were affected by what he brought with him in the way of morals and traditions? And only now are we beginning dimly to realize that what goes on on the other side of the world can be any affair of ours. The famous query of a certain American statesman, what has America to do with abroad, probably represented at bottom the feelings of most of us. In so far as we established commercial relations with Europe at all, we felt and still feel probably that they were relations of hostility, that we were one commercial unit, Europe another, and that the two were in competition. In thinking thus, Of course, we merely accepted the view of international politics common in Europe itself, the view, namely, that nations are necessarily trade rivals the commercial rivalry of Britain and Germany is presumed to be one of the factors explaining the outbreak of the present war, the idea that nations do thus compete together for the world's trade is one of the axioms of all discussion in the field of international politics, well, both these assumptions in the form in which we make them involve very grave fallacies the realization of which will shortly become essential to the wise direction of this country's policy. If our policy, in other words, is to be shrewd and enlightened, we must realize just how both the views of international relationship that I have indicated are wrong. I will take first the more special one that of the assumed necessary rivalry of nations in trade as its clearer understanding will help in what is for us the larger problem of the general relationship of this country to other civilized powers. I will therefore try and establish first this proposition that nations are not and cannot be trade rivals in the sense usually accepted, that, in other words, there is a fundamental misconception in the prevailing picture of nations as trading units one might as well talk of red-haired people being the trade rivals of black-haired people, and I will then try and establish a second proposition, namely, that we are intimately concerned with the condition of Europe, and are daily becoming more so owing to processes which have become an integral part of our fight against nature, of the feeding and clothing of the world, that we cannot much longer ignore the effects of those tendencies which bind us to our neighbors, that the elementary consideration of self-protection will sooner or later compel us to accept the facts and recognize our part and lot in the struggles of Christendom, and that if we are wise, we shall not take our part therein reluctantly, dragged at the heels of forces we cannot resist, but will do so consciously anticipating events, in other words, we shall take advantage of such measure of detachment as we do possess, to take the lead in a saner organization of western civilization, we shall become the pivot and center of a new world state, there is not the faintest hope of America taking this lead unless a push or impetus is given to her action by a widespread public feeling, based on the recognition of the fallacy of the two assumptions with which I began this article, for if America really is independent of the rest of the world, little concerned with what goes on therein, 
if she is in a position to build a sort of Chinese wall about herself, and, secure in her own strength, to develop a civilization and future of her own, still more if the weakness and disintegration of foreign nations, however unfortunate for them, is for America an opportunity of expanding trade and opportunities, why then, of course, it would be the height of folly for the United States to incur all the risks and uncertainties of an adventure into the sea of foreign politics, what as a matter of simple fact is the real nature of trade between nations, if we are to have any clear notion at all as to just what truth there is in the notion of the necessary commercial rivalry of states, we must have some fairly clear notion of how the commercial relationship of nations works, and that can best be illustrated by a supposititious example, at the present time we are talking, for instance, of capturing German or British or French trade, now, when we talk thus of German trade in the international field, what do we mean? Here is the iron mister in Assen making locomotives for a light railway in an Argentine province, the capital for which has been subscribed in Paris which has become necessary because of the export of wool to Bradford, where the trade has developed owing to sales in the United States, due to high prices produced by the destruction of sheep runs, owing to the agricultural development of the West, but for the money found in Paris, due, perhaps, to good crops in wine and olives, sold mainly in London and New York and the wool needed by the Bradford manufacturer, who has found a market for blankets among miners in Montana, who are smelting copper for a cable to China, which is needed because the encouragement given to education by the Chinese Republic has caused Chinese newspapers to print cable news from Europe but for such factors as these, and a whole chain of equally interdependent ones throughout the world, the ironmaster in Essen would not have been able to sell his locomotives, how, therefore, can you describe it as part of the trade of Germany, which is in competition with the trade of Britain, or France, or America? But for the British, French, and American trade, it could not have existed at all. You may say that if the S. Ironmaster could have been prevented from selling his locomotives the order would have gone to an American one. But this community of German workmen, called into existence by the Argentina trade, maintains by its consumption of coffee a plantation in Brazil which buys its machinery in Chicago, the destruction, therefore, of the Essen trade, while it might have given business to the American locomotive maker, would have taken it from, say, an American agricultural implement maker, the economic interests involved sort themselves, irrespective of the national groupings, I have summarized the whole process as follows, and the need for getting some of these simple things straight is my excuse for quoting myself, Company operation between nations has become essential for the very life of their peoples, but that company operation does not take place as between states at all. A trading corporation, Britain, does not buy cotton from another corporation. America, a manufacturer in Manchester strikes a bargain with a merchant in Louisiana in order to keep a bargain with a deer in Germany, and three or a much larger number of parties enter into virtual, or, perhaps, actual, contract and form a mutually dependent economic community, numbering, it may be, with the work people in the group of industries involved, some millions of individuals and economic entity, so far as one can exist, which does not include all organized society, the special interests of such a community may become hostile to those of another community, but it will almost certainly not be a national one, but one of a like nature say a shipping ring or groups of international bankers or stock exchange speculators. The frontiers of such communities do not coincide with the areas in which operate the functions of the state. How could a state, 
say Britain, act on behalf of an economic entity such as that just indicated, by pressure against America or Germany, but the community against which the British manufacturer in this case wants pressure exercised is not, America, or, Germany, both Americans and Germans are his partners in the matter, he wants it exercised against the shipping ring or the speculators or the bankers who are in part British, this establishes two things, therefore, the fact that the political and economic units do not coincide, and the fact which follows as a consequence that action by political authorities designed to control economic activities which take no account of the limits of political jurisdiction is necessarily irrelevant and ineffective. From Arms and Industry, a study of the foundations of international polity. Page 28. Utnams, New York. The fallacy of the idea that the groups we call nations must be in conflict because they struggle together for bread and the means of sustenance is demonstrated immediately when we recall the simple facts of historical development. When, in the British Islands, the men of Wessex were fighting with the men of Sussex, far more frequently and bitterly than today the men of Germany fight with those of France, or either with those of Russia, the separate states which formed the island were struggling with one another for sustenance just as the tribes which inhabited the North American continent at the time of our arrival there were struggling with one another for the game and hunting grounds. It was in both cases ultimately a struggle for bread. At that time, when Britain was composed of several separate states, that struggled thus with one another for land and food, it supported with great difficulty anything between one and two million inhabitants. Just as the vast spaces now occupied by the United States supported about a hundred thousand often subject to famine, frequently suffering great shortage of food, able to secure just the barest existence of the simplest kind. Today, although Britain supports anything from 20 to 40 times, and North America something like a thousand times, as large a population in much greater comfort, with no period of famine, with the whole population living much more largely and deriving much more from the soil than did the men of the Hetarchy, or the Red Indians. The struggle for bread does not now take the form of struggle between groups of the population. The more they fought, the less efficiently did they support themselves, the less they fought one another, the more efficiently did they all support themselves. This simple illustration is at least proof of this, that the struggle for material things did not involve any necessary struggle between the separate groups or states, for those material things are given in infinitely greater abundance when the states cease to struggle. Whatever, therefore, was the origin of those conflicts. That origin was not any inevitable conflict in the exploitation of the earth. If those conflicts were concerned with material things at all, they arose from a mistake about the best means of obtaining them, exploiting the earth, and ceased when those concerned realized the mistake. Just as Britain supported its population better when Englishmen gave up fighting between themselves, so the world as a whole could support its population better if it gave up fighting. Moreover, we have passed out of the stage when we could massacre a conquered population to make room for us. When we conquer an inferior people like the Filipinos, we don't exterminate them. We give them an added chance of life. The weakest don't go to the wall. But at this point parenthetically I want to enter a warning. You may say, if this notion of the rivalry of nations is false, how do you account for the fact of its playing so large a part in the present war? Well, that is easily explained men are not guided necessarily by their interest even in their soberest moments, but by what they believe to be their interest. Men do not judge from the facts, but from what they believe to be the facts. War is the failure of human understanding. The religious wars were due to the belief that two religions could not exist side by side, 
It was not true, but the false belief provoked the wars. Our notions as to the relation of political power to a nation's prosperity are just as false, and this fallacy, like the older one, plays its part in the causation of war. Now, let us for a moment apply the very general rule thus revealed to the particular case of the United States at this present juncture. American merchants may in certain cases, if they are shrewd and able, do a very considerably increased trade, though it is just as certain that other merchants will be losing trade, and I think there is pretty general agreement that as a matter of simple fact the losses of the war so far have for America very considerably and very obviously overbalanced the gains. The loss has been felt so tangibly by the United States government, for instance, that a special loan had to be voted in order to stop some of the gaps. Whole states, whose interests are bound up with staples like cotton, were for a considerable time threatened with something resembling commercial paralysis. While we may admit advances and gains in certain isolated directions, the extra burden is felt in all directions of commerce and industry, and that extra burden is visible through finance the increased cost of money, the scarcity of capital, the lower negotiability of securities, the greater uncertainty concerning the future. It is by means of the financial reaction that America, as a whole, has felt the adverse effects of this war. There is not a considerable village, much less a considerable city, not a merchant, not a captain of industry in the United States that has not so felt it. It is plainly evident that by the progressive dearness of money, the lower standard of living that will result in Europe, the effect on immigration, and other processes which I will touch upon at greater length later, any temporary stimulus which a trade here and there may receive will be more than offset by the difficulties due to financial as apart from industrial or commercial reactions. This war will come near to depriving America for a decade or two of its normal share of the accumulated capital of the older peoples, whether that capital be used in paying war indemnities or in paying off the cost of the war or in repairing its ravages. In all cases it will make capital much dearer and many enterprises which with more abundant capital might have been born and might have stimulated American industry will not be born. For the best part of a generation perhaps the available capital of Europe will be used to repair the ravages of war there, to pay off the debts created by war, and to start life normally once more. We shall suffer in two ways. In a recent report issued by the Agricultural Department at Washington is a paragraph to the effect that one of the main factors which have operated against the development of the American farm is the difficulty that the farmer has found in securing abundant capital and the high price that he has to pay for it when he can secure it. It will in the future be of still higher price, and still less abundant, because, of course, the capital of the world is a common reservoir if it is dearer in one part, it is dearer to some extent in all parts so that if for many years the American farmhouse is not so well built as it might be, the farm not so well worked, rural life in America not so attractive as it might be, the farmer's wife burdened with a little more labor than she might otherwise have, and if she grows old earlier than she might otherwise, it will be in part because we are paying our share of the war indemnities and the war costs, but the scarcity of capital operates in another way, one of the most promising fields for American Enterprise Island of course, in the undeveloped lands to the south of us, but in the development of those lands we have looked and must look for the company operation of European capital. Millions of French and British money have poured into South America, building docks and railroads and opening up the country, and that development of South America has been to our advantage because quite frequently these enterprises were under the actual management of Americans, 
using to the common advantage the savings of the thrifty Frenchman and the capital of the wealthy Englishman. For, of course, as between the older and the newer worlds there has gone on this very beneficent division of labor, the old world having developed its soil, built its cities, made its roads, has more capital available for outside employment than had the population of newer countries that had so much of this work before them. And now this possibility of fruitful company operation island for the time being, and it may be for many years, suspended. I say nothing of the loss of markets in the older countries which will be occasioned by sheer loss of population and the lower standard of living. That is one of the more obvious but not perhaps the most important of the ways in which the war affects us commercially. Speaking purely in terms of commercial advantage and these, I know, do not tell the whole story I am not for a moment pretending they do the losses that we shall suffer through this war are probably very much more considerable than those we should suffer by the loss of the Philippines in the event, say, of their being seized by some hostile power, and we suffer these losses, although not a single foreign soldier lands upon our soil. It is literally and precisely true to say that there is not one person from Hudson Bay to Cape Horn that will not be affected in some degree by what is now going on in Europe, and it is at least conceivable that our children and children's children will feel its effects more deeply still, nor is America escaping the military any more than she has escaped the commercial and financial effects of this war. She may never be drawn into active military company operation with other nations, but she is affected nonetheless. Indeed the military effects of this war are already revealing themselves in a demand for a naval program immensely larger than any American could have anticipated a year ago. By plans for an enormously enlarged army, all this is the most natural result. Just consider, for instance, the ultimate effect of a quite possible outcome of the present conflict Germany victorious and the Prussian effort next directed at, say, the conquest of India. Imagine India Prussianized by Germany, so that, with the marvelous efficiency in military organization which she has shown, she is able to draw on an Asiatic population of something approaching area code 4000000000, whether the situation then created would really constitute a menace for us or not. This much would be certain that the more timid and timorous among us would believe it to be a menace, and it would furnish an irresistible plea for a very greatly enlarged naval and military establishment. We too in that case would probably be led to organize our nation on the lines on which the European military nations have organized theirs, with compulsory military service, and so forth. Indeed, even if Germany is not victorious the future contains possibilities of a like result, imagine, what is quite possible, that Russia becomes the dominant factor in Europe after this war and places herself at the head of a great Slav confederacy of area code 200000000 with her power extending incidentally to the Pacific coast of Asia, and, it may be the day after tomorrow, over area code 100000000 or area code 200000000 of Asiatics. We should thus have a militarized power of area code 200000000 or area code 300000000 or area code 400000000 souls, autocratically governed, endowed with western technical knowledge in the manipulation of the instruments of war, occupying the Pacific Coast Line directly facing our Pacific Coast Line. It is quite conceivable, therefore that as the outcome of either of the two possible results of this war we may find ourselves embarked upon a great era of military zotion, 
Our impregnability does not protect us from militarism. It is quite true that this country, like Russia, cannot be permanently invaded. It is quite true that hostile navies need not necessarily be resisted by navies of our own so far as the protection of our coasts is concerned. But there is no such thing as absolute certainty in these matters. While personally I believe that no country in the world will ever challenge the United States, that the chances are a hundred to one against it. It is on just that one chance that the militarist bases his plea for armaments and secures them. But, unfortunately, we are already committed to a good deal more than just mere defense of American territory. Problems arising out of the Philippines and the Panama Canal and the Monroe Doctrine have already committed us to a measure of intervention in the political affairs of the outside world. In brief, if the other nations of the world have great armies and navies and tomorrow those other nations will include a reorganized China as they already include a westernized Japan if there is all that weight of military material which might be used against us, then in the absence of those other guarantees which I shall suggest, we shall be drawn into piling up a corresponding weight of material as against that of the outside world, and, of course, just as we cannot escape the economic and the military reaction of European development, Neither can we escape the moral, if European thought and morality did, by some fatality, really develop in the direction of a Nietzschean idealization of military force, we might well get in the coming years a practical submergence of that morality which we believe to be distinctively American, and get throughout the older hemisphere a type of society based upon authority, reproducing it may be some features of past civilizations, Mongol, Asiatic, oh.